You're listening to Fuller Curated, a podcast of the best conversations happening at Fuller. And welcome to the first day of the Fuller Integration Symposium 2022. My name is Brad Strawn, and I'm privileged to serve as the Evelyn and Frank Freed Chief of Spiritual Formation and Integration, uh, Dean of the Chapel and Professor of Clinical Psychology here at Fuller. I also serve as the Chair of the Integration of Psychology and Theology, and that's why I get to preside over this amazing event. The Integration Symposium here at Fuller is held annually by the School of Psychology and Marriage and Family Therapy. Each year, we invite a distinguished scholar working at the intersection of psychology and religion to present three lectures. We wish you could all join us here on our beautiful campus in Pasadena, um, but we're thankful that you're able to join us in this digital format uh, this year, again, because of COVID, and we're thankful that we have people participating from all around the world. Privileged to be with you uh, here this morning, so thank you all for joining. Um, you know, I, I decided to... Uh, give a title to this lecture series. And uh, the title, I think, is something like um, The Science and Spirit of Gratefulness, 25 Years of Progress. So uh, let me just unpack that subtitle just a little bit. It was actually 26 years ago that I stepped foot on the Florida campus for the first time. Uh, I had been making the transition in my own work from the psychology of personality which was what my area of training was back at uh, Illinois, uh, as Brad mentioned, to the psychology of religion. And, uh, you know, I just, I just wanted to get some feedback from people. I wanted to talk to people to see how they did it, how they studied religion, you know, psychologically, how they were able to, you know, integrate their beliefs uh, with their work. And I just, I just wanted to get some advice, you know, some inspiration from people in the field. So I came to ground zero for the psychology of religion, which is Fuller uh, Seminary. And, you know, I think this was 1996. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I went around and I talked to people like um, uh, Richard Gorsuch and Hendrika Vandekamp, who was so uh, uh, gracious and actually uh, arranged for me to give a, a colloquium when I was down there. Uh, Jeff Bjork, uh, Newt Maloney, uh, Sung Young Tan. Uh, so all the who's who, you know, in the psychology of religion, particularly uh, Christian uh psychology and, and uh, theology. Uh, anyway, I thought to myself at the time, maybe I should actually attend seminary. You know, why dabble in the psychology of religion? I, I should get some, you know, do this the right way, you know, do this in a serious way. Maybe I need to go and get like an MDiv degree and so on. And I had a sabbatical coming up. I thought that would be a really good use of my resources. So actually, before I came down the floor, I got on the phone with Gorsuch, who um, you know, suggested we have a phone conversation. And I was talking to him about this. You know, I think he, uh, he and I connected maybe because we were both PhDs from Illinois, so we had you know, that in common. And uh, I don't remember everything that he said, but the gist of it was, look, you don't need to get a, an actual formal degree. You, know, you, don't need to get a, you don't need to get advanced training you know, in a seminary. You, know, you have a PhD, and like, you can figure this stuff out. Right. That, that was the essence of what he was saying. Uh, and I thought, well, OK, that, I mean, that was uh, I took that advice. But with all due respect uh, to Rich, uh, it's not all that easy, I found, to figure it all out 
on one's own. So I've been, you know, kind of still dabbling in the psychology of religion and uh, Christian theology and just trying to really uh, fully understand how we can combine uh, empirical psychology with Christian reflection on what it means to be human. And so rather than taking a huge big picture, uh, I decided to be much more focused and focus on the psychology of gratitude. So I've been, you know, I've been very grateful for the, for the, um, theologians and philosophers and psychologists of religion who put up with me for these past 26 years. And, um, and, and even empirically minded psychologists, which is the field that I came from, many of whom thought I was crazy for studying religion or religious topics. Uh, you know, they used to be considered the anti-tenure factor in psychology. So if you didn't want to get tenure, you should study religion, right? Because it wasn't uh, highly respected at the time. Fortunately, that's changed quite a bit over the last few decades. Well, it was another two years before I uh, became interested in the psychology of gratitude, before I became uh, a scientist who was you know, dedicating his life to the study of what gratitude is, why it matters, and what does it all mean, and so on. So that's 24 years ago. So 26, 24, split the difference, boom, you got 25 years of progress. So I'm super excited for these three days. I have lots of slides to share with you. Of course, you know, that's that's how I traffic being a uh, professor. Um, and if we don't get through everything today, one of the beauties about a three-day conference is that I get to do it again tomorrow or Friday. So uh, we're going to cover a lot of ground. So fasten your seatbelts. Uh, I'm going to share with you what I've learned as much as I can uh, in the psychology and spirituality of gratitude. Um, I'm always excited when I have a new group to talk to um, because, you know, for me, uh, sharing the science of gratitude, it's like, it's like going to the edge of the Grand Canyon with, with friends or family who have never been there before and saying, look at that. Is, isn't that amazing? Isn't that awesome? Right? Because we've learned a lot about gratitude and, and, and the power of gratitude and grateful living. So to be able to share that, uh, it's uh, super, I'm just super grateful for this opportunity. So thank you again, Brad, for the uh, invitation. There it is, 25 years of progress. And I'm going to kind of go through this. And again, uh, if we don't have time, that's fine. I'll just call audibles, as they say. Uh, so my work over the past two decades, okay, 24 years, exactly 24 years ago this year, I did the first study. I'll mention that briefly in just a moment, uh, has been uh, dedicated to declaring and demonstrating this basic fact that gratitude is the deepest touch point of human existence. Okay, now, if I heard someone say something like that, uh, you know, I might say to myself, like, what? I mean, how can that be? How can gratitude be the deepest touch point of, I mean, what does that even mean <laughs> for that matter? You know, well, uh, maybe it doesn't sound very scientific you know, uh, to make a statement like that. Uh, perhaps it should be worded more as a question as opposed to a, you know, declaration. But I can assure you that equally bold assertions have been made about gratitude since the beginning of time. I mean, gratitude has been called the greatest of the virtues. It's been called the secret to life, uh, the key that opens all doors. You know, uh, here's one, the most uh, passionate transformative force in the cosmos. Uh, how's that sound? Um, you know, I mean, so I'm a pretty good company to make this declaration about uh, gratitude, the deepest touch point of human 
existence. Well, it's, it's one thing to say something like that, right? Or to say that it's the greatest of the virtues or it's the key to life, the key that opens all doors, the secret to life, so on and so forth. Uh, it's quite another to show that. So that's what I've been interested in doing. That's been my, my mission for these past couple of decades is to you know, apply the science, you know, to try to investigate uh, gratitude psychologically and empirically, but keeping always, you know, a theological perspective as, as a Christian person, uh, trying to place gratitude and look at it in a, in a robustly biblical and theological way without, you know, reducing it to a mere emotion or to a mere element of politeness. You know, gratitude seems so simple on the surface. Uh, if I asked you, you know, to think of what comes to mind, you might say things like thank you or, you know, appreciation or thankfulness or that sort of thing. And it seems so innocent, so, you know, modest uh, on the surface. But, you know, psychologists, uh, we have a way of, of mudding the waters very quickly and very easily, making something seemingly so simple, very, very uh, complex. And it turns out there are so many layers and levels to gratitude, so many uh, nuances to it and uh, niceties to it that uh, it does really, I find, require the input from multiple disciplines besides psychology, theology, philosophy, anthropology, sociology, you name it. Uh, that's one of the beauties about it. And uh, I hope to be able to share with you some of these thoughts as we proceed over these next few days. So I can only give you an introduction. Uh, to the topic. Uh, and hopefully, though, you'll, you'll be motivated, inspired to go deeper. And I'm interested, of course, in your comments and questions and the respondents, because every time I talk to an audience, it's a chance for me to learn more about gratitude and what it is and why it matters as well. So that's my introduction. I guess I have a few minutes left for the actual presentation. Uh, why don't we proceed? So let me talk about, you know, I'm often asked, so, Dr. Emmons, you know, how did you get started in the study of gratitude? You know, one of the beautiful things about studying something like gratitude is that every year uh, you get a built-in publicity window. Usually it's around Thanksgiving, right? Journalists, reporters, uh, they want the latest scoop, you know, on the science of gratitude, the science of Thanksgiving. After all, it's the annual gratitude holiday, right? And so at some point, uh, oftentimes they'll ask me, so you've been doing this for a while. How did you get started? Right. How did you choose or why did you choose to study gratitude? And it's often the case that, you know, we choose what we study. Right. That's certainly uh, usually the way it's, it's been. We have a, quite a bit of uh, freedom, flexibility to choose what we want to you know, spend our time on. Uh, for me, though, it, it's more ac accurate to say that gratitude actually chose me as opposed to me choosing gratitude. The fact of the matter is I sometimes feel that, you know, it did, in fact, uh, choose me. So many years ago, this actually was, I think, uh, uh, end of 97 or somewhere around there, it doesn't matter. Uh, but actually, I was invited to a conference. And it was a very small conference, small gathering of, of people. And the title of the conference was uh, Classical Sources of Human Strength. And uh, six or seven or eight of us were asked to get together and uh, review the literature on what typically have been thought of in a philosophical, theological, spiritual writings, psychological writings of these classical sources of human strength, qualities that make life better for oneself as well as for others. So we would know those today, now two and a half decades later, as you know, spiritual qualities or spiritual virtues or sources of spiritual information, virtues, things like forgiveness, uh, humility, wisdom, love, hope, 
okay, uh, and the like. Well, gratitude was one of those in that pile. Okay? And so we were supposed to uh, volunteer to, you know, uh, choose one of those sources of human strength and get back to the organizer of the conference. So, okay, that's the one I want. I'm going to go and I'm going to review the literature. I'm going to come to this meeting. I'm going to present what we've learned about it, what we need to learn in the future. So the, the agenda, you know, do a literature review, but talk about, you know, what needs to be done and kind of work together and figure this stuff out. Okay. Well, it turned out I wanted to do uh, humility. Humility was one of the ones in the pile. And the very first research I did as an undergraduate was narcissism. You know, and I figured, well, narcissism, humility, they're connected, right? I mean, it's like the flip side of it. I just, you know, reverse everything I knew about narcissism and uh, boom, I'd be good to go with humility. Well, it turns out someone else had already claimed humility, said, sorry, image can't have that one, you know, take something else. I said, well, okay, what else is left over? It turned out the only one that was left over that nobody else wanted was gratitude. So I became, so I was assigned the topic of gratitude. They said, go and do the research, do a literature review, come to the meeting, tell us what we've learned about the science of gratitude. It turned out we had learned virtually nothing. There was like three studies going back, you know, 70 years. It was like a study from 1920s or a study from 1968. And, and there was one from 1982. That was it. Right? So I said, I can't go to this conference and say, you know, we haven't learned anything. Uh, I need to actually do some research. So I began doing an actual experiment, experimental study, randomized controlled trial in the spring of 1998 uh, with uh, students here at the University, University of California, Davis, the very first gratitude journaling. And the rest, as they say, is history. Now, it's important to note that all of this in this work, oh, the, the journal is up there because the uh, papers from that conference were published in the Journal of Social and Clinical Psychology. So. You may be interested in looking at that at some point. I think it was in uh, spring of 2000 when that was uh, published. Of course, we've uh, made a lot of progress since that time. This predated positive psychology. So I know a lot of you are familiar with positive psychology. Uh, positive psychology has helped to um, really, you know, publicize uh, gratitude science and gratitude research. But gratitude as a research topic actually predated positive psychology, as had research on forgiveness and humility and hope and a lot of these other good concepts that we've been studying. Those of us at the uh, intersection of psychology of religion, positive psychology, psychology of emotion, um, what else? Yeah, those areas uh, kind of focused on that since even prior to positive psychology. Okay, uh, let's do just a little bit of conceptual heavy lifting, not moderate lifting, not too heavy. Uh, anyway, I mentioned that we can take something like gratitude and, and seemingly seems so simple, right? At face level, just being thankful or being appreciative. I like to define it this way. It's always important to define our concepts, don't you think? So we know, uh, at least if, if you reject that, you can say how you define it. And we can have a conversation about it. So I like to think about it as two aspects of information processing. Number one, it's an affirmation of the good. So we affirm the good. When we look at life through a lens of gratefulness, we see the good. We look for the good. We notice the good. Uh, we take in the good. So it's an affirmation. It's saying yes to life. It doesn't mean that, certainly doesn't mean, and we know that's the case, that uh, life is just affirming the good or that there is no bad or it's ignoring the bad. It's, it's not a denial of suffering or adversity or uh, afflictions, that sort of thing. But we're just saying it's a, it's a recognition of the good and knowing where that good comes from. 
So we do two things. We affirm the good. We say yes to life. And then we recognize that the good originates outside the self. Okay. Uh, so maybe it's other people providing gifts for us or doing things for us that we could not do or provide for ourselves. Maybe it's God, uh, supernatural givers, right? Maybe it's the universe. Some, some people talk about being grateful in, in, a, in a broader cosmic sense without identifying a particular supernatural being uh, behind the goodness they receive. But regardless of the source, I think it's fair to say we have these two elements, affirming the good and then recognizing that the good originates at least partially outside the self. Okay, so I like to say that gratitude is living in the position and posture of saying yes to life. Okay, that's the basic uh, starting point. From now, we can add a bunch of elements to. And tomorrow, I'm going to talk more about gratitude as a virtue and talk about ingratitude as a vice. And I'm going to unpack further things like recognitions and uh, feeling a sense of uh, undeservingness, right? Feel recipient of grace and so forth, givers and gifts and receivers and benefactors and benefits and beneficiaries and all those sorts of things which are critical for gratitude. But I like to start at this basic foundational level. So gratitude really is foundational. It really is the, the, the deep touch point. Uh, I like to think that, you know, if we don't understand gratitude in all its layers and levels to it, I mean, we really can't understand ourselves or even life itself. It's that basic. It's that fundamental. It's that foundational. Okay. Again, how do I back up these claims, right? You can say anything you want and people do all the time, but you got to have, uh, from my point of view, uh, there's of course a lot of evidence we can bring to bear and we can turn to scripture and certainly we can do that. And tomorrow I'll be talking about the spirit of gratitude. Uh, today though, I want to talk not about scripture so much, but about uh, empirical <laughs> or uh, scriptures being uh, psychological and medical journals, for example. Do you know there's been more research on gratitude in the past uh, decade than there had been 50 years prior to that. So this graph shows the number of publications, these are peer-reviewed publications, okay? Just in one database, just in the PubMed, so these are the medical journals. So if you look at the graph, going back to 1965, so, you know, what was that, 50, uh, over 50 years ago, to the present time, the largest bar is for the past decade, more research the past decade than in 50 years prior to that. And this is everything from survey science, you know, to neuroscience. Uh, it's getting more and more difficult to follow the science. Okay, it's, uh, the science has been so rapidly accelerating that there's now, there's now a mountain uh, of scientific work that, that's too tall for any one person to scale. So it used to be fairly easy. You used to be able to say, yeah, I, I kind of, you know, are familiar with most of the big studies on gratitude, but now, Forget it. There's no way uh, that any one person can be familiar with it, which is good because it indicates the maturation of field, right? Now they have a whole, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of studies. You have millions of dollars, somewhere between 15 and $20 million has been invested in the science and also in the application of gratitude uh, in various settings, educational, healthcare, among others. Again, I'll mention some of this uh, throughout these three days. So super exciting to see the growth uh, the rapid surge and acceleration in published research in the science of gratitude. And so, um, paper that I submitted for lecture one, I talked about a global gratitude movement. It seems to be expanding just 
every place just seems to be popping up. People are talking about gratitude. They're keeping gratitude journals, as Brad mentioned. He wrote in his today. Um, again, super exciting to see attention given to what for a long time was very much a, a highly neglected topic within the field of psychology. So uh, I've tried, you know, I've been very fortunate to contribute a little bit uh, to the science of gratitude. And let me tell you now what we've been able to do and how it all began. All right. So again, kind of taking a step back, uh, looking at the origins of the science. I began with this question. Pretty simple, I thought, straightforward question. Is expressing gratitude the key to unlocking and unleashing happiness? Now, back in graduate school at Illinois, uh, I was doing research with a professor who became known as like Dr. Happiness. Uh, Ed Diener, who unfortunately passed away last year at the age of 74. Um, but we didn't call it happiness back then, okay? Uh, we referred to the field, well, he did. I was just a student, right? So uh, uh, he was not only Dr. Happiness, but but Dr. Subjective Well-Being. That was the term that was used. That sounds better, doesn't it? Subjective Well-Being, right? Uh, more more uh, objective, more... Um, you know, uh, rigorous, more scientific. So happiness seemed kind of flaky. I mean, this was Illinois. This is like the, the, the seat of Dust Bowl and Pierce, you know, the Midwest. Happiness was something that people in California cared about, right? Northern California, Marin County, right? That sort of thing. We couldn't, we couldn't afford to study happiness. Well, now, happiness is quite respectable. Uh, just like the psychology of religion and spirituality is quite respectable. It wasn't always that way. Uh, there's a whole science out there of who is happy and why and how do you get happier. And there's all sorts of tips and strategies and techniques about developing greater happiness, you know, in 10 steps or seven secrets, 30 days, three hours if you're in a hurry, and all those sorts of things. Well, I began more modestly, I thought. What, what's the link between gratitude and happiness? You know, it seemed to me that uh, being, you know, somewhat familiar with uh, with spiritual writings and and uh, scriptures uh, a little bit as I've dabbled personally and also professionally again, starting in the mid nineties. I thought, you know, there's something between counting blessings and being happier, right? Looking at life through a lens of gratefulness or thankfulness that should, should have something to do with your happiness levels. Now, uh, when I work, when I use the word happiness, don't get too upset about that. Uh, I don't mean it in terms of you know the short-term pleasure, hedonics, feeling good. I use it as a broad umbrella term, which encompasses all the things that we mo most want in life, right? Whether it's um, joy, contentment, satisfaction, uh, flourishing, thriving. I mean, you choose your favorite term. I'm just going to use happiness as a generic term to uh, encompass a lot of these things. So basically, I mean, a, a life of, of meaning, a life of purpose, a life of significance, of value. And uh, I just, you know, because of the research, uh, chose to connect it to habits, because that's what most people understand, right? When you ask most people to describe the state that they want for themselves and for others, their family, their loved ones, after all, you know, the Declaration of Independence guarantees us the right to pursue happiness, the jobs that we choose, where we move, who we live with, uh, who we choose to you know, spend our life with, what we do with our time. Uh, a lot of times is with, with that in mind, what will, what will maximize our levels of happiness? So anyway, uh, I thought there might be a link. Could there be a link between gratitude and happiness? How would one study this actually experimentally? 
So I didn't want to do just a, a survey, just ask people, you know, well, tell me how grateful you are and tell me how happy you are. And we'd find a correlation, a big deal, right? I mean, I'd be shocked if we didn't find that sort of connection. But I wanted to, um, as they say in sports, put a few points on the board early, you know, and that was to do an actual uh, experimental trial, randomized controlled trial, which, as you know, is the gold standard for research, uh, whether it's in psychology, other sciences, or, or in the medical field, uh, I, I wanted to actually create a treatment for gratitude, uh, which was simply gratitude journaling. All right. So uh, we called this the counting blessings versus burden studies. Again, this was now in the late 90s. It wasn't published till 2003. But I think because it was an experimental study, uh, it was randomized controlled trials. Uh, the findings were pretty, um, I think, um, persuasive and compelling. And because it was the first of its sort, I mean, it's been it's been cited lots and lots of times. It's been cited, I think, more than all of my other studies uh, put together. So that's been kind of cool. But also, it's been exaggerated some of the findings. So one has to be careful, uh, you know, when the some of the work, scientific work, gets into the public domain. Sometimes there's a little bit of license that's taken, and we have to be very careful when we try to make. Um, generalization conclusions from the research. But anyway, randomized controlled trials, over 8,000 people between the ages of eight and 80 have been in these studies. So a lot of people, uh, it's all around the world. I mean, we did the first one, but now dozens of laboratories have extended and expanded and have generalized upon our findings. So what do we ask people to do? Well, simply as Brad mentioned in the introduction, write down things that you're grateful for. We give these basic instructions. I mean, we vary them by different studies, have different instructional sets and different foci and so forth, but there are also some variation on this, right? Write down things you're grateful for, write down gifts you received, uh, write down, you know, people to whom you're grateful to for today. People have done a favor for you, have been kind to you, you know, that sort of thing. So uh, we, we want to show it's not specific to the instructions, right? It's more of a, a, a robust phenomenon. And I think we've been able to do that. So, of course, it's a randomized controlled trial, so not everybody's doing this. Uh, other people are doing other activities, such as writing down things which are going wrong every day. You know, we call this the hassles group, stressors, hassles, um, complaints, problems, you know, the garden, simple garden variety hassles about, you know, Zoom not working, right, which didn't happen back then because we didn't have it. Uh, but, you know, uh, misplacing things, losing things. Uh, being late, uh, you know, not fine, uh, you know, all these usual sort of stressors that we experience uh, in daily life. <laughs> and then there's actual other control groups, which do none of the ratings of actual events. They just do all the uh, independent or rather the, the dependent variables, which are things like mood levels, happiness levels, uh, health behaviors, relational statuses, like how close connected did you feel to others? Did you feel... Um, lonely, isolated, how much did you exercise? So basically, after the period of time, whether it's two weeks, three weeks, a month, you get a good cross-sampling of a person's levels of well-being, happiness, stress, relational health, uh, physical activity, and so on. So was there an effect of being in the gratitude group relative to the other various comparison conditions? So some of the results will be based on, that I'll tell you about, will be based on these uh, experimental design trials. We also measure gratitude as a trait, though. And I, I just want to throw this up there. Tomorrow, I'll talk more about gratitude as a virtue and as a disposition. But when we say that grateful people do this, or grateful people feel that, 
or they don't feel this, or they're protected from that. We're talking about gratitude as a disposition. So my colleagues and I published the GQ questionnaire, clever, right? GQ gratitude questionnaire, six items. It's been translated into dozens of languages used all around the world, which measures different aspects or facets of the grateful disposition. So um, there's many ways to get at gratitude. Some are through reflective exercises like journaling. Some are through the trait measure, for example, the GQ. Okay, so what have we found? I'm going to share with you this slide, which I know is breaking you know, five out of the four rules of PowerPoint, but I like it because uh, six different panels really summarizing six separate research programs on gratitude's impact on some aspect of functioning, whether it's emotional well-being, whether it's relational health, like grateful people get along better with others, whether it's a goal attainment, so grateful people actually achieve more goals, they actually become more helpful, more giving, more forgiving, more compassionate, more empathic, so there's relational benefits as well. I mean, study after study, domain after domain, finds that the grateful mind and the grateful life reap advantages across spheres of functioning, right? You really can't overplay the hand of gratitude. Uh, and that's what I've been, you know, uh, trying to communicate through the science of gratitude. That's what the studies have found. And these, these findings are robust. Uh, they're sustainable. They're rep replicable. Uh, these are moderate to strong effect sizes. Uh, so it, it's in anywhere between 10 and 30% changes over time within one group, as well as comparisons across conditions. These are studies with people who are uh, free from psychological um, diagnosable conditions, as well as physical illnesses. So it's healthy populations, clinical populations across the board, you find different benefits in these different uh, studies. So many, many ways in which grateful living seems to be linked to superior outcomes. Some of the most interesting ones, by the way, are on the bottom. Uh, grateful people show less episodes of depression. They, rec they recover more quickly when they are depressed. Uh, and then they cope better with stress, whether we're talking about the, 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 the slow drip of everyday stress, the, the hassles of life, or the major catastrophic trials and tribulations, grateful people handle those better. So there's many ways in which gratitude seems to amplify or increase good outcomes in life and then decrease or uh, turn down, reduce, lower, diminish, protect against the bad stuff of life. Again, this is whether gratitude is investigated as a temporary state, which is you know induced when you recall what you're grateful for, or as a generalized enduring trait. Okay, so uh, we'll talk more about that. But I, so this is just a, a, an overview. Now, I do a lot of talk for um, speaking to healthcare audiences, doctors, nurses, uh, field of healthcare, philanthropy, hospitals, very much interested in the physical effects of gratitude. And it turns out there's a good reason for that, because gratitude experience leaves a stamp on our bodies. Uh, it affects our brains and our bodies. And we've discovered right from the start that gr grateful people take better care of their health, they exercise more, they get better sleep. There's like nine studies on sleep quality, sleep duration, sleep efficiency, linking gratitude to better sleep. Fascinating, right? I mean, uh, they exercise more, 30% greater increase in exercise when people are keeping a gratitude journal. There's just a number of ways in which um, there's positive medical benefits of the practice of gratitude. Grateful people are more likely to adhere in terms of taking their medication, eat healthier diets, uh, less uh, high fat, 
uh, diets, uh, for example, and then actual clinical biomarkers of health and illness and aging and disease. There's studies, and this, this is st stuff is coming out like every week, right? That's part of this. Not I'm not able to keep track of it all because it's just such a mountain of research. But cortisol levels, uh, um, uh, measures of in, uh, inflammation, inflammatory biomarkers in heart failure patients, right? Uh, lipid profiles, right? Lower cholesterol, uh, lower blood pressure as much as 10 to 15 percent. So you can see why physicians would be tremendously interested. Uh, in some of these findings for good reasons. So again, whether you look at healthy populations or patient populations, you start to see ways in which gratitude matters, that gratitude works in a variety of ways. Now, one could, as one has, I have, in fact, uh, summarize all this stuff in two words. They say, you know, not everybody has a time to listen to three lectures on three straight days. They say, so Emmons, tell us what you learned. I say, okay, how about two words? That gratitude works. Okay, in fact, one of my books is entitled Gratitude Works. Uh, and then you know, I expand a, a little bit that gratitude has the power to heal, to energize, and to change lives. Now, lest I be mistaken for someone who's just uh, you know a cheerleader for gratitude or just focus on gratitude because it has um, you know um, utilitarian benefits, right, or instrumental benefits, I don't think this is the main message. Okay, so, so don't get me wrong. Okay, don't say that you know, gratitude is valuable only because it's a strategy for being healthier or happier or making more money at work or being better liked or being less stressed or depressed. I mean, we, I mean, we shouldn't minimize those are very important outcomes, but that's not the main thing. You know, that's one of those findings that the, that the media took and ran with. They said, you know, hey, gratitude is, is, is good for life, right? It's, it's, it's a performance enhancer. I and mean, everything in life is made better by it. And I say, well, that's true, but that's not the main message for me. I mean, so what? That gratitude leads to better performance, right? A lot of things increase performance, right? Five-hour energy drink, you know, a double espresso make me perform better. And I can, you know, remember things and be sharper mentally. But that's not the main thing with gratitude. The main thing with gratitude is that, again, it's, it's the deepest touch point of human existence. It's the truest approach to life, I think. Because life is about giving, receiving, repaying benefits, about recognizing that who we are and uh, what we have in life is dependent upon so many others who came before us, both who are with us now and who have come before us. And in so many ways, it's, it's the truest and deepest approach to life. Yes, it does tend to bring those benefits, but I don't think it's, that's the main story when it comes to gratitude. Okay, I have about 12 minutes left and um, I need to cover a few more things. This, I think I'll skip because I could spend an hour on this. Actually, I kind of throw this in, in a lot of presentations, especially when I talk to medical audiences, because they want to know the mechanisms. You know, what are the neurological, neurobiological mechanisms by which gratitude actually brings these benefits that actually works? And the research is exploring these at a hormonal level and at a psychoneuroimmunological level. And so um, not all of it has been, you know, um, uh, unequivocally proven so far, but various pathways are being examined at a hormonal level, a stress pathway, uh, looking at things like cortisol, which I mentioned, cellular aging, uh, telomeres and telomerase have been examined with respect to gratitude. Gratitude journaling does seem to reduce inflammatory biomarkers in patients with heart failure. So these are all very promising, it seems to me. And this, I think, will be the next generation of research, at least in the, in the medical science of gratitude, is figuring out how it all works under the skin 
and uh, in the brain. Okay, so, but for more general audience, what I like to do is say that there's three reasons why gratitude works. And I call this the arc of gratitude. And I further um, unpack this in my little book of gratitude. And arc is easy to remember, don't you think, than this big diagram with all these arrows and boxes and circles and so on. So I say gratitude does three things. It amplifies, it rescues, and it connects. Okay? So it's an amplifier of the good, which means gratitude turns up the volume on the good. Right? When you look at life through a lens of gratitude, the good in your life, whether it's your job, whether it's your spouse, your house, where you live, whether it's life itself, whether it's the freedoms you enjoy, Things look better when you look at them through a lens of gratefulness. They look bit, uh, better and bolder and bigger and brighter. It, it pumps up the volume on the good, like an amplifier pumps up the volume on sound, uh, you know, or, or magnifying glass uh, magnifies uh, print uh, and so forth. That's a good thing. Why is that a good thing? Well, because, you know, guess what? Our brains tend to do just the opposite. Okay. Uh, I think you've probably heard of the negativity bias. Anybody? If, if you go to any talk, on happiness, positive psychology, read any book on happiness, positive psychology, I guarantee at some point, the author or the speaker is going to bring up the negativity bias. The fact of the matter is that our brains tend to focus on what's going wrong as opposed to what's going right. You know, the old saying that bad is stronger than good, pain is stronger than pleasure, uh, complaint is stronger than compliment, dissatisfaction over delight, and so on. So we need a force that counteracts the negativity bias, that, that rescues us from the bad. And that's what gratitude can do. Gratitude can rescue us from, from complaint, from ingratitude, from entitlement, and all those, all those forces which can hijack our consciousness and make it very difficult to sustainably increase our level of gratefulness in our lives over time. So A is for amplify, turning up the volume on the good. R is for rescue, turning down the volume on the bad. And then C is for connection. This may be, I think, maybe the most important aspect of why gratitude is effective. Gratitude is social. Gratitude is relational strengthening. Gratitude is going beyond the self, connecting to something larger than ourselves, right? So um, it's been said that gratitude is the fabric of our lives, knitting us together. Uh, it's the all-purpose glue. It's the moral cement. It's, it's the emotional spackle that gets in the cracks in relationships and keeps them from you know, falling apart. Or, or fragmenting or breaking or, uh, you know, the stitches that keep our relationships together can unravel very easily. Gratitude is something which can connect us in a deeper and more uh, sustainable way with other people. So I really think that gratitude is uh, something, it's, it's the fuel that keeps our relationships going and growing every day, you know, without which we would just, our relationships, they would just sputter, they would conk out without gratitude. Now, that's, you know, using very colloquial language, but scientists use you know, better language than that. They say that gratitude pays itself forward. Gratitude leads people to uh, find relationship partners which they can count on. It helps them to give back the good they've received. So when we are grateful, we don't just receive the good and keep it squander to ourselves. It motivates us to give back the good. It pays itself forward. You give thanks, you feel gratitude. Other people receive it. So gratitude spreads, you get this upward cycle of giving, receiving, generosity, compassion, goodness, giving back, giving away the good. And I think that's, it's really in the context of relationships where gratitude, the power of gratitude or the lack thereof is most, is most keenly felt and expressed. So 
arc. So remember the arc, amplify, rescue, and connect. Okay, again, we could talk more about that. And tomorrow, again, I'll talk more about the um, virtue of gratitude. Oh my gosh, getting short on time. So uh, research has been done with people who have mild levels of depression. I just, I just want to include this slide to actually have some quotes from real people. You know, studies are great. Statistics are important. All right, but we need the people. We need, you know, their, their, their stories and what they say about practicing gratitude. These are individuals with mild to moderate depression who, after keeping gratitude journal, start to report these sorts of changes in themselves, each of which reflect a different aspect of that ARC model, amplifying the good, being rescued from the bad, and being connected to other people, right? Makes the negativity vanish. Helps me remember there's people out there that when I'm having trouble, that help is on the way. There's people out there doing things for me that I cannot easily do for myself. I go from what is missing to what I have. It helps me notice the good. So in many respects, uh, these actual comments from individuals who are, who are depressed, but in the gratitude journaling study, are illustrating and elaborating aspects of that ARC model. Okay, uh, let me just do this briefly, because I, this is, I find this very fascinating. You know, the more I study gratitude, the more I learn about it, but I also become aware of pushback, where people will say things like, you know, isn't gratitude just this? Or isn't it just that? Uh, you know, they try to minimize it. They try to explain it away. Uh, they try to point to examples which are maybe, you know, um, malfunctions of gratitude. Say gratitude really is not such a good thing. It doesn't work always. Uh, it can be actually a bad thing. And they'll point to uh, what I call gratitude myths that are beliefs about gratitude, which if you actually look at, you know, the scientific evidence really are not backed up at all. They wind up being lies more than truth. Um, but we can always come up with examples, you know, and anecdotes that seem to fit uh, these beliefs. So one of these is that gratitude makes us passive. You may have heard this one. You know, if you're grateful, you're not going to be motivated. Uh, you're going to give up trying or acting. It, it undercuts ambition. Uh, one person said gratitude is the, the undignified badge of surrender. How about that one? You're just complacent, lazy, lethargic. You know, you won't be striving anymore. You won't be purpose-driven. Well, we find just the opposite. In fact, that gratitude actually uh, inspires people uh, to do more and to do better and to achieve their goals and to be purpose-driven and so on. And one of my favorite examples is just within the, within the domain of giving to charity, especially to healthcare uh, organizations. Uh, here's a chart on gratitude and charitable giving, which uh, data has shown that, you know, giving to hospitals, healthcare centers, it's like, you know, tens of billions of dollars every year. Okay, 80% of that money is given by individuals and their families. 34% of that is given out of gratitude. So a full third of the 80% of, let's say it's $20 billion. So, you know, do them a lot of money, right? Gratitude is the major reason why people give to healthcare organizations because of the health, because of the care they receive or a loved one has received. That doesn't sound like it made them complacent or lazy or lethargic. It sounded like that cause them to want to do good. In fact, there's studies linking, a lot of studies linking generosity uh, to gratitude. Gratitude is the basis for generosity. Again, more on that tomorrow. Some say, hey, you've got to feel gratitude in order to act gratefully, right? You can't really uh, say thanks unless you feel grateful. This comes up around Thanksgiving, you know, where they say, you know, should you force yourself to be grateful, you know, if you don't, if you don't feel it? And I say, yeah. I mean, because if someone does something nice for me, I am obligated to thank that person, whether or not I want them to do, whether or not I actually like the gift that they gave me. Uh, I don't have to be, feel authentically grateful in order to act 
gratefully. So I think, you know, that um, obligation, responsibility uh, trumps authenticity in this case. Again, this is one of these issues that philosophers have debated uh, for a long time and some of these issues which I think hopefully we can address or I'll mention some of these tomorrow when I take more of a theological and philosophical approach to gratitude. Uh, how about the last one? They say, you know, gratitude is fine when life is going well. Life is going swimmingly, everything is great. Uh, but what about in the realities of life, the harsh realities of suffering, of tragedies, of trials and tribulations? What about gratitude then? Okay. And I say, that's exactly when we need gratitude the most. That's exactly the most compelling illustrations and examples of grateful living occurs in situations like this, right? Um, virtually every story that I've heard when people contact me and they say, Dr. Emmons, you know, I read your book, or I've seen this article, I've heard you give this talk. I, let me tell you my story. And it's never a story of, you know, hey, I was on top of the world and everything was going great. And, you know, I want to add gratitude as a practice to, you know, magnify, go from a nine to a 10 on my happiness meter. No, it was just the opposite. People were in the depths. They were, they were in a hole so deep, they had to reach up just to touch the bottom. And they realized that there was hope to be found in gratitude. That gratitude is, is not just a switch to turn on when things go well. It's also a light that shines in the darkness. And there's been research studies on looking at people who can process events and life situations and memories, bad memories, in a grateful way and find some closure, find some healing in those when they can um, process those using uh, grateful recognitions. It's quite fascinating to me that I see that gratitude becomes people's spiritual lifeline, uh, whether they're depressed, whether they're uh, addicted. I've, I've talked to people who are, you know, adult survivors of child abuse, uh, people who are addicted and afflicted with various pathologies, drug abuse, and they say, you know, gratitude saved me, gratitude rescued me. And so it's something which is powerful, not just when life is going well, but also when despair uh, sets in. So we actually, you know, I, I like this quote. I've mentioned this in one of my books. This is from uh, Reverend the late Peter Gomes, who was the minister at Harvard uh, University Memorial Church. And he said, you know, one of the best ways to, to create gratitude is to engage in this redemptive thinking. You know, just go from bad to good. Think about something bad and think about here you are today. You've made it through the darkness. You made it through the suffering. You've endured it. Look to see where you are now. So the capacity for redemption, even though negative events can bring wounds and leave scars for, for decades, uh, we know the human capacity for redemption, very, very powerful. Gratitude plays a big role in this capacity for redemption. That's why I think it's even more powerful in the case of suffering and trials, tribulations, and not just something that you know involves turning up the volume on the good. Choosing to see the world through grateful eyes doesn't look the same again, this person said. And it's true. You start to see blessings where you saw burdens. You start to see opportunities and possibilities where you just saw problems before. Uh, you see hope where before you saw despair. We have it from the data. We have it from statistics, from anecdotes, from the stories of real people. You, a lot of you are involved with you know, patients and do clinical work, and I'm sure you've seen it as well. Gratitude works. Gratitude matters. I think it's the deepest touch point of human existence. Let me just close. I have one, just one story. Uh, so 30 more seconds. Uh, this is uh, Steve Fisk. Steve Fisk is a 49-year-old uh, guy with uh, Lou Gehrig's disease or ALS. 
And he gets to the point in his life where the disease has drained most of the movement out of his body. And uh, he, he, wants, he brings his wife, he has his wife and his two daughters come over to his bedside. He wants to tell them something very poignant and very specific, how proud he is about them. And he says, you know, I don't think life is always fair. And it's certainly been true in my case. It's not fair. I should have two wonderful, caring, supportive parents who raised me right, brothers and sisters that are there. For so he's talking about all the blessings that he had, has had in his life, right? Together, my wife and I had two beautiful daughters, talented daughters, who um, make us proud on a daily basis. Oops, sorry. Uh, life is not fair. So he's choosing to focus on the good, affirming the good, recognizing that he doesn't necessarily deserve this good. Uh, but yet there it is anyway, even in the midst of this terrible disease, he died two weeks after he dictated this uh, message to his family. So this is, again, myth number three. Yes, you have gratitude in the presence of suffering. In fact, gratitude is not a looking you know, for the good only. Sometimes we see the good in the bad. And these expressions of, of gratitude don't ignore tragedies and trials. Uh, they're made in my in my mind. They're made more powerful because of the contrast. You know, when people choose to live thankfully, even in the midst of difficult life situations. Well, that's what religious teach us, right? Theologists teach us that gratitude to God teaches us that as well. Uh, I'll be saying more about that uh, tomorrow. So right now, I just want to say thank you. Uh, appreciate it, uh, Dr. Strawn, for introducing or uh, inviting me to be a, a respondent participating in this uh, important lectureship. And uh, I was uh, motivated in through, in through the invitation to pick up a couple of Dr. Emmons's books. I already benefited from, from reading them. And I really appreciated uh, the paper that you'd sent and certainly also your talk this morning. Very much appreciate that. As is on this uh, initial page of my short PowerPoint, uh, Dr. Emmons, you had sent the first lecture, which was titled, the version that I read, The Story of Gratitude from an Ancient Religious Practice to a Modern Global Movement. You might have remembered writing that maybe about two months ago, but in any case, that was, uh, that was what I looked at before uh, today. And most of my comments uh, come from that, although much of what you shared in the last uh, 45 minutes or so also resonates with me, and I'll try to pull some of that in as we go. Uh, so my, the title of my response uh, in the next uh, 10 and 12 minutes attempted to leap off your the story of gratitude uh, to, to look. And obviously, we're not going to in 10, 10 minutes cover the entire history of gratitude, but I, but I was thinking sort of about um, the divine story of gratitude. And as a theologian, particularly one who has been doing more recent work in theological interpretation of scripture, um, I've decided to, to basically leap off of some of the recent work I've been doing in theological interpretation of scripture. And this uh, subtitle of eschatological participation in triune graciousness sort of calls attention to, I think, one of the things that you said in, in your talk earlier today, uh, in terms of the basic definition, uh, recognition of the good that originates outside of ourselves. Right. So somehow um, this good that we are uh, acknowledging is identified as something that that uh, we have participated, that we have been uh, made privy to or, or we've been invited to. And that does call attention to the graciousness of God through creation and, and all these other uh, uh, aspects of our lives that that 
enable, if you will, and potentially bring forth and prompt uh, gratitude. So I want to sort of couch some of my uh, sort of scriptural readings in light of your paper uh, in the, in this way. And I, I noted that, again, tomorrow, I think you mentioned that you were going to be talking more about the spirit of gratitude and, and potentially looking at some of the scriptures. So um, maybe I'm going to preempt a little bit of that today, but I haven't read your second lecture, and I'm, I'm looking forward to to uh, that part of it as well. Uh, I'll start with, and, and here's what I call uh, St. Paul is the primordial theologian of global gratitude expan expansion. And you might recognize this phrase, global gratitude expansion, comes from the end of the paper version uh, that was behind lecture one that you said uh, at one point there, that given all the work that has been done, uh, we may be on the verge of, of a global gratitude expansion. I really love that phrase. And I was thinking about St. Paul as a primordial theologian of, of such, so to speak. Uh, St. Paul uh, uses the word thanks or gratefulness in the Greek uh, 45 out of the 65 times that it appears in the New Testament. These texts, I think, uh, ones that, and again, you know, Ephesians and Colossians uh, may or may not be authentically Pauline, but we're going to uh, just include them on, on this conversation just for the sake of our discussion. These texts, I think, uh, we're well familiar with, right? Um, Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks to God the Father at all times and for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 4, 6, don't, do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Colossians 3, 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, giving, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Um, as I was reading your paper and then thinking about this global gratitude expansion, again, uh, particularly 1 Corinthians, uh, on 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances. Uh, Paul was already inviting, and, and, all, and what I would call an at all times posture. Uh, I think, you know, you, you're talking about the disposition, perhaps, to, to thankfulness, inviting that at all times. And Ephesians 5.20 says the same thing, giving thanks to God the Father at all times. Of course, you know, when I was a, when I was a kid growing up and memorizing scripture, I always puzzled about the fact that how could I actually be actually be saying thank you to the Lord at all times? Because I'm doing a bunch of other things as a kid. But but as we grow in our faith, we begin to see uh, that that Paul might have had some insight into into the power of thankfulness in many of the ways that you've described it uh, when he urges us to at all moments uh, and to do all things really in thankfulness. Uh, the other thing that I really noticed as well in these four in particular, but certainly in other parts of uh, the Pauline literature and elsewhere in the scriptures also, but here very specifically, uh, how Paul connects our giving of thanks to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, or this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Uh, again, Colossians 3, 17, do everything uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus comma, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So that the, 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 the fullness of, of thankfulness as a way of life, both in word and in deed, but mediated in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ or through uh, the will of God in Christ Jesus for us. So there's this Christological dimension uh, that connects gratitude uh, to uh, who God is in Christ as revealed to us and who God is in uh, uh, what uh, the path upon which we have been invited to walk uh, in the footsteps of Jesus that I also think is 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 important. And I think the last thing there from this perspective, um, 
you know, you mentioned at one point in your talk a few moments ago about how gratitude is a way of saying yes to life. That was one of the comments you made relative to one of the slides that you were that you were talking about. And again, I think that St. Paul, in, in many respects, um, had, had a hint of that, if you will, right? Not from the empirical research he did, but certainly from out of the spirituality and out of the um, uh, his own his own study of Torah, his own uh, journey as a as a theologian and then as a disciple of Jesus. Um, the, this idea of really being able to give thanks to God at all times and for everything and, and doing everything with thanksgiving uh, and whatever we do in word and deed as thanksgiving uh, uh, and in all, in all circumstances is suggestive of how I think St. Paul would have said amen to, to your point that uh, a life of thanks, a thanksgiving, a gratitude, gratefulness and uh, intentionality with regard to expression of thanksgiving and gratefulness uh, would be ways of saying yes to life, uh, in particular, saying yes to the life that God invites us to in the footsteps of Jesus. I now want to look at what I would call, um, if you will, eschatological apocalyptic dimensions of this global gratitude expansion. This comes from work that I've been doing more recently in theological interpretation of scripture, in particular, a, a theological commentary I wrote on the book of Revelation. So I, I looked up how many times does the word thanks are related uh, appear in the book of Revelation, and there's three times that it manifests itself. I think we're familiar with these scriptural texts, but let me just again read them and then give some context and, and invite us to think about uh, Thanksgiving from this perspective. Uh, Revelation 4, which is the initial throne room uh, of, of the Father, uh, and, and Christ as the lamb on the right hand. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. So uh, who's giving uh, thanks here? The living creatures, the four living creatures, uh, those strange creatures of Revelation 4 and 5. Revelation 7 is uh, a, a text that talks about the 144,000 that are gathered together from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language also then, if you will, in the heavenly scene uh, before the throne. And Revelation 7, 12 uh, then says that this 144,000 are singing, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. And Revelation 11, verse 17 uh, is a pause in the, if you will, the arc of the uh, apocalyptic narrative, right at the end of the uh, the trumpets and uh, right before, uh, well, not right before, but uh, anticipating the seven bowls. So we've had the seven seals, the seven trumpets. We're now transitioning from that to the seven bowls. And here it is mentioned that the, the 24 elders, which were introduced back in Revelation chapters four and five, they're the ones who are singing, we give you thanks, Lord God Almighty, who are and who were, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. So three different groups uh, reflected in Thanksgiving, the 144,000 uh, of uh, people from around the world, if you will, many cultures and so on. The 24 elders, uh, there's a bit of uh, you know conversation among Revelation scholars about uh, you know, to what, to what degree they represent Israel and the church and, and, and what is the nature of that representation. And then the four living creatures, uh, really, I think, uh, as many scholars would agree, representing of, of the diversity of creation itself, right? 
um, and and how that diverse creaturely world of which we're a part of as, as human beings are all in that respect, also giving glory, honor, and thanks. I was thinking about a portion of your paper as I was working through uh, this uh, global gratitude expansion in the book of Revelation, where you talk about the social context within which um, research is done and within which then uh, certain benefits are experienced and certain uh, uh, aspects of our understanding of gratitude occur. In your talk as well, you uh, help us to understand revelation, as a, I mean, not revelation, but gratitude as a social phenomenon, the way in which it connects us with one another. And so I, it, 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 it was striking to me that in this particular context, obviously, uh, you know, it's the seven churches and us as readers in our current churches who are now uh, receiving this uh, apocalyptic revelation unveiling. But, but we observe, if you will, how uh, the various uh, creaturely dimensions of, of God's creation are responding in gratitude, right? The four living creatures, the 24 elders, and then, and then people uh, uh, from all, all walks of life and so on and so forth. So uh, the, 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 there's two further layers, I think, of, uh, of what these texts invite at least me to think about. As we think about the social context of gratitude or, or, or gratitude as a social and connecting phenomenon, uh, I wondered, for example, about how in these texts, uh, whether it's activities like singing, certainly, uh, certainly we might call these, and there's a lot of uh, literature in Revelation about uh, much of a Revelation being uh, in sort of uh, liturgically situated. Uh, and we can think about litur this liturgical dimension in a variety of ways. Certainly church services are one uh, anal an an analogous way in which we might think about that. But the point is something like this, right? That this gratitude is, is directed toward the one who's seated on the throne. Uh, God who reigns forever and ever, the mighty one who has begun to reign, who will reign forever. And so this liturgical context is a worshiping one. Uh, it's, a, it's a specific kind of social context. Uh, when you went through your talk and you, you observed about how gratitude pays for itself, I think it was one phrase in one of your slides. I, I began to think about uh, in this, in connection to this slide that I've created, how does worship in that respect also pay for itself? Worship being the context within which gratitude wells up, if you will. Uh, worship being the context within which gratitude expresses itself alongside a range of other uh, uh, performative, uh, ideational, and uh, practical expressions. Giving glory, for instance, right? Recognizing honor. Uh, in this case, obviously, all, in these cases, all, all directed toward God. But but what is how does this worship context prompt, catalyze, and generate, if you will, uh, Thanksgiving amidst these other these other aspects of of recognition of the honor that belongs to God, uh, giving of glory uh, that that belongs to God, uh, identification of acknowledgement of the wisdom uh, that God represents, uh, uh, recognizing the power that uh, through which He begins to reign. So. Uh, all of that led me to wonder about how, if you will, these liturgical contexts, these singing contexts, these worship contexts uh, might help us to uh, experience gratitude, might prompt gratitude, might deepen gratitude, uh, and how perhaps, you know, uh, then how my next steps in psychology of religion as the interface with uh, studies of gratitude explore 
these various kinds of liturgical and, and social contexts uh, to help us to appreciate and then uh, expand, even perhaps in this global uh, dimensions, uh, our experience of gratitude. I think, as you mentioned at the very end, uh, it's, it's certainly not the case that uh, we can turn gratitude on and off. But uh, from that perspective, how do these kinds of social contexts and practices and so on nurture uh, the, the kinds of postures that will enable us to, to be like Paul in the perspective of what he has, uh, what he invites us to do in, in being thankful at all times? Thank you, Dr. Emmons and Dr. Young, for sharing your perspectives with me and with us today. Dr. Emmons, in preparing for this response, I, I thoroughly enjoyed reading your inspiring account of the history of gratitude research. As I contemplated all that has been achieved, there were, there were two things that stood out to me. The first was the powerful ways in which practices of gratitude have contributed to flourishing among individuals and within society as a whole. As you so poignantly demonstrated today, gratitude works. Second, in the paper I received outlining your presentation, you also outlined that while much has been achieved, there remains an ongoing need and great potential for research on gratitude and specifically how it contributes to the good life. In your own words from your written outline, Dr. Emmons, we cannot understand what it means to be human unless we understand gratitude. And so as I begin, I'd like to briefly touch on my own research interest on the construct of joy and share how this interest shaped the way I engaged with your presentation. Unlike gratitude, which from its inception seems to have been viewed as a multifaceted construct, an emotion as well as a virtue, the research literature has often only depicted joy as a general, generalized positive emotion. Since starting to think on the construct of joy in 2019, I've wondered, is that all there is to joy? Is joy merely an acute emotional response called forth by any situation I deem to be deserving of joy? Or is there more to it? From a theological perspective, Paul admonishes us to rejoice in the Lord always. According to him, there is an element to joy which we control, which we can pursue. And to write in his musings on joy argues that joy ought to be considered a virtue, a habit of acquired over time and through intentional practice. Tied to this, Miroslav Volf points out that joy has a moral balance. He gives the example of a distorted form of joy, which might have emerged among Nazi German SS soldiers while they committed atrocious acts of violence toward their fellow human beings. For Miroslav Volf, such joy clearly is not true joy. These perspectives would suggest that joy is not merely an acute emotional response, but that A, we have the ability to learn or practice joy, and B, there is an element in finding true joy that hinges on how we find it. The intentions of our hearts, our motivations in the pursuit of joy matter. As I was reflecting on the significance of the next generation of gratitude research and the point that you made regarding the importance of understanding how gratitude is cultivated, I ended up circling back to these musings on joy. 
I wondered what parallels might be drawn between joy and gratitude. First, similar to gratitude, I believe that joy is a multifaceted construct and therefore should be considered a virtue that can be learned and developed into trait-like ways of being. Gratitude has paved the way for thinking about joy from a wide variety of different angles. The second parallel I want to draw is based on this mutual conceptualization of joy and gratitude as virtues. Considering Miroslav Volf's idea of moral valence, it would seem that there are ways the pursuit and expression of joy can be morally distorted. And so as I wondered on the similarities between joy and gratitude, I began to ask myself, are there forms of gratitude that are distorted? Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. The Pharisee in the story taken from the Gospel of Luke is seemingly practicing gratitude. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. And yet I would imagine few, if any of us, would look to him as a model for this practice. I propose this story depicts one example of how gratitude might be distorted, and I am sure we as a group could come up with more. Today, Dr. Emmons, you began to demonstrate the positive pro-social effects of practicing gratitude, and you summarized this in your paper by stating, when people regularly engage in the systematic cultivation of gratitude, they experience a variety of measurable and sustainable benefits, psychological, physical, interpersonal, and spiritual. As I raise this question of distorted gratitude, I wonder whether such potential distortions might hinder these measurable sustainable benefits attributed to healthy gratitude practice. In the example cited, the Pharisees distortion of gratitude might serve to perpetuate division between members of an in-group and an out-group. Thank you, God, that I am not like them. If distortions of gratitude exist, and if these cause more harm than good, then the next question I would like to raise is, are there particular forms of practicing gratitude that move us toward flourishing and the good life? For joy, I've begun to think about this in terms of the motivations with which we pursue joy. I'm thankful that recent virtue research from within the field of positive psychology has begun to conceptualize ways in which um, and individuals' motivations for pursuing virtues can be considered. What are the belief systems and the narratives people hold, and what are the resulting priorities they set for their lives based on these? Distinguishing these motivations is important when thinking about virtues in the context of flourishing, and I would like to demonstrate this using an example. If I'm pursuing compassionate behavior for my own gains based on a narrative that promotes my own individual success, such compassion would seem to promote a different life trajectory than choosing to pursue compassion out of, for example, a belief that we as humans are all the same in our humanity and therefore are all deserving of compassion. The motivations that drive our pursuit of virtues matter. 
This conceptualization of the motivational systems and the narratives undergirding virtue acquirement have given me an avenue to begin grappling with how I might distinguish different types of joy. I am curious whether these conceptualizations might serve the next phase of gratitude research, seeking to understand the how behind practices of gratitude. Is it possible that measures focused on the motivational systems behind the practices of gratitude could help to identify gratitude distortions? Could this approach to research detect motivational systems and narratives that are more likely to contribute toward flourishing? I've spent a lot of time wondering about the types of motivation and narratives that lead to virtuous trait like joy. In, in line with the truism, it's hard to hit the target when you don't know what you're aiming at. I have found it helpful to read perspectives on joy by spiritual exemplars, such as the late Archbishop Desmond Tutu, Mother Teresa, and the Dalai Lama, amongst other theologians. In order to begin shaping hypotheses regarding what type, types of motivational systems and narratives might foster virtuous joy. In line with this thinking, I'm curious whether there are similar narratives that might contribute to defining what motivational systems undergird gratitude practices and cultivate flourishing. Miroslav Wolf is one of the theologians that has heavily influenced my understanding of joy. He views joy as the outward visible expression of lives being lived well based in motivational systems of love. Love is modeled in the person of Jesus Christ. For Wolf, we find joy as we align our hearts toward God and grow in embodying love in our daily lives. I have found this vision to be helpful as I'm beginning to conceptualize true forms of joy. So as I close, I would like to present a snippet of Miroslav Wolf's theology that ties gratitude into God's acts of love as seen as in his generosity. I believe his theology aligns well with your empirical work and findings, Dr. Emmons. I also believe it provides a rich framework through which we can continue to consider motivational systems of gratitude that orient toward the good life. In his book, Free of, Free of Charge, Miroslav Wolf embeds the practice of gratitude in a framework of generosity. Gratitude is based in a theology that recognizes that God has given absolutely everything. God, the creator, is a God that gives. As such, we, as the created, live in the tension of being both fully dependent on God and free at the same time. It is through leaning into our dependence on God, who is the source of our being and our very existence, that we ultimately find true freedom. Wolf points out that when we assert our independence, when we claim gifts as our own achievements, we wrong God. This assertion of independence denies the gifts that are being given and in doing so wrongs the giver. It is analogous to plagiarism, one of the greatest sins of academia, claiming someone else's work as your own. For Wolf, therefore, our first obligation toward God is to receive God's gifts without negotiating and without doning a mindset of repayment. We can give nothing to God but have received everything from God. Ultimately, this obligation to live in a posture of receiving is a posture of faith. To have faith in God is to be without works before God. And in being without works before God, we as receivers are free to relate appropriately with our God, who is the giver, maintaining a posture of empty hands held open toward God, believing in faith, 
he will continue to give. Within Wolf's vision, gratitude springs forth from a heart willing to receive. By expressing thankfulness, we express our appreciation for that which has been given. Gratitude is an act of honoring the giver. In his own words, Wolf states, faith receives God's gifts as gifts. Gratitude receives them well. At the heart of Miroslav Wolf's theology lies his belief that the triune God is fundamentally a God of love who binds particularity and unity into one. With that backdrop in mind, the gifts that God gives in no way reduce or belittle the receiver, but instead come with the message, you are loved and therefore you exist. Within this framework, gratitude is the acceptance and celebration of this reality. This is Miroslav Volf's theology of gratitude. For him, it would seem that practices of gratitude hinge on our perception of ourselves as receivers. Do I view myself as too strong or too independent to receive from another? Am I willing to admit that I am dependent? As well as our perception of ourself in relation to the giver. Do I view the giver as someone I'm indebted to? who gives with strings attached, or is the giver, giver someone I can manipulate? Full disclosure here, I'm not very good at pursuing a regular gratitude practice. As I have been reflecting on your work and as these questions have been circling in my mind, I've been forced to look more deeply at my own motivations, at my own heart. Why do I find it so difficult to practice gratitude? How do I see myself? How do I see God? How do I see others? I still have a ways to go in this journey of self-discovery, but I would be remiss if I did not take this moment to express gratitude to you, Dr. Emmons. Thank you for agreeing to present at the symposium for not only pursuing this important avenue of research with commitment and loyalty, but also for providing this audience and myself with the opportunity to be challenged, to grow into lives marked by goodness. Thank you for your time. You have been listening to a production of Fuller Studio. Fuller Studio provides articles, podcasts, videos, and other resources for a deeply formed spiritual life. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit us at fuller.edu slash studio.